Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Please listen carefully. Carefully. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. I can't believe it's here already, but this is our Thanksgiving episode. This Thanksgiving, there are so many things that I'm extraordinarily thankful for in my personal life. And at the top of that list is something that I'm not actually sure I've shared on this podcast before, uh, but I have a fifth child on the way. I have a baby boy who is due in January. So this is a really joyous Thanksgiving for my family, and I hope that your family is going to have a wonderful holiday as well. And I should say that professionally, I also have a number of things that I am very grateful for. And at the top of that list is this amazing community of listeners that we have built over the last few years with this podcast. Now, I know it's been a tumultuous few years in this country and a number of countries around the globe. Uh, And like many of you, I'm sure... Uh, I'm constantly looking around and trying to figure out, trying to look for signs that maybe, just maybe, the fever is about to break and that our fragile society might just stabilize. And, you know, I I keep looking for these signs and I have no idea what the future is going to hold in that regard. But this program is dedicated to trying to help in whatever small way we can to bring people back together again. And I am so grateful for all of you for being a part of this mission. So happy Thanksgiving. I hope you have a wonderful holiday, a celebration of family and friends and appreciation for all that we hold dear. So what do we have on tap today? Well, on this episode, we are joined by George Washington University historian David Silverman. He's an expert in early American and Native American history And he's here to help us understand the complicated history of Thanksgiving, including why the English colonists and Wampanoags formed that initial alliance and feasted together in the first place, to how that alliance violently came apart, to why this complex understanding of history is important for Americans to understand. I hope you enjoy our conversation and happy Thanksgiving to you all. David Silverman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So uh, this is our Thanksgiving episode, and you're here to talk about your recent book on the topic, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, published in 2019 from Bloomsbury. You can buy it from Amazon and all major booksellers. So 
Before we talk about Thanksgiving and what it means historically and then what it means culturally to Americans and, you know, if there's a misalignment between the two, uh, first things first, tell us about your area of expertise and the type of scholarship that you do. Sure. Um, I'm a specialist in Native American, colonial American, and American racial history. So it's not always the case. I can't say this is a hard and fast rule, right? And I'm an academic, so I should be speaking, you know, objectively and not just, you know, anecdotally. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, when I talk to social scientists, um, you know, my own profession, sociology or, you know, political science or, or what have you, oftentimes I find that when I talk to people on a personal level, that I find that what they're researching, there was some part of their life that's in that research, right? Like if they're researching poverty, they've been touched by it in some way or, um, you know, race, they've had, you know, uh, a history of dealing with those issues. Um, you know, for you personally, what brought you to the study of Native Americans? It was a convoluted route that that brought me here. I, I was always interested in history. Why? I can't exactly say. I was brought up in Massachusetts. It's a very historically minded place. And I was fortunate enough enough to be raised by parents who would bring me to historic sites and uh, talk to me about them. Um, but I always had an interest in the topic. Uh, when I was in college, I was initially interested in the history of the American Revolution, and especially in the kind of urban rioters in places like Boston and in New York City and Newport, Rhode Island, um, who took what had been a fairly polite constitutional debate between the colonies and the British Parliament and turned that debate into something quite a bit more revolutionary that spoke to the needs and aspirations of, of everyday colonial people. So this that perspective of history from the bottom up, the history of uh, people who didn't necessarily leave their own records, um, who uh, had dirt under their fingernails and mud on their boots was something that always appealed to me. And as I became more knowledgeable about history, what I realized is that the real history from the bottom up that needed to be told, at least for the colonial period, was the history of indigenous people who, again, you know, are, were most of the people um, who were profoundly important to the development of colonial America um, and for whom colonial America was profoundly important to them. And I, I realized that uh, one would see American history in an entirely new light from the perspective of indigenous people being at the center. So you mentioned uh, not leaving any records. That, that kind of uh, piqued my interest a little bit. So I, I do want to dive into the book in a moment. But I, sure. I want to ask you sort of a generic question about your profession. Um, just because I, I find it illuminating um, to hear people tell us how they arrived at the conclusions they've arrived at. So mm -hmm. how does one reconstruct <laughs> history? I mean, you right. know, especially if and I know you're not coming at it from scratch, right? Like you've you have made a career out of this, so you've been through a lot of documents. But, you know, generically speaking, if you're coming at something from scratch and you want to reconstruct something that happened hundreds of years ago, what does that entail? What are you actually doing to, to do that? Well, fundamentally, a convincing historical argument is one that's based on appeals to primary sources, which is to say sources that were written by eyewitnesses or participants in, in the events in question. Now, when studying Native American history, we face a fundamental problem, uh, which is that very few indigenous people left their own records. Not none. Um, 
for the people that I'm studying in um, in my book about Thanksgiving, the Wampanoag people, eventually some of them gain literacy in their own language through uh, through mission schools, and you know they they left behind um, a handful of illuminating records. But by and large, we're talking about a historical record that is controlled by Europeans. Um, and you know, let me emphasize here: um, whether one is studying working class colonists, um, African slaves, women, you're facing the same sorts of dilemmas, right? And that very few of them left behind their own records. So we, we as historians, face a a challenge here. Um, we can either use documents that have narrow perspectives, you know, heavily biased perspectives, um, uh, huge gaps in what what the producers of those documents could see or, or not. Um, or we can not write the histories of the vast majority of the people at all. Um, I am not satisfied with a historical profession that focuses exclusively on the history of elites, as important as, as they were. I'm deeply interested in these hard to discuss groups of, of people. So how do we go about doing it? Well, you have to have some records. And, you know, fortunately for some, for some native people, you can't tell their history with any level of detail that it deserves. There just aren't enough materials to do that. That is not true for the native people of New England in the 17th century. Um, they had the unfortunate accident of, of living in the midst of an invasion from Europe of some of the most literate people in the Western world right. who were left behind <laughs> copious, copious amounts of documents. Are those documents biased? No question about it. But let's be clear. Some of these colonists lived with Native people on a day-to-day mm -hmm. -day basis, had sleepovers with them, had sex with them, traded with them, learned their languages, learned enough about their religions so they could try to evangelize them and you know undermine those religions from within. Some of these colonists dreamed in indigenous languages. So we can't say that these colonists have so much cultural baggage, so much cultural prejudice that they can't see native people for who they were. Um, I, I think that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, it's also worth noting that colonists didn't always come at native people from the same perspective. Some colonies had had alliances with some native people um, and were rivals against other colonies who had their own alliances with native people. Um, the New England colonies were rivals with one another. For that matter, the English colonies were rivals with the French and were rivals with the Dutch. And they're all coming at native relations from different perspectives. When we put these records in conversation with one another, we get a fuller picture than we otherwise might. There's also an archaeological record, which is quite rich. That tells us a lot about the material culture of the people, about mm -hmm. the health of, of people, about status distinctions within a community. And then there are oral traditions among Native people, some of which were recorded across the centuries, other of which are in existence today. And when we pull all those records together, all those different sources together, we can get a better glimpse of the past than we can with just one uh, one type of, of source in isolation. So uh, real quick, before we move on, can you just sort of vividly describe to us, like when you encounter one of these uh, records, like tell us about it. What does it look like? I mean, is it a digitized version? Are you looking at like, you know, parchment paper? <laughs> like, uh, give us a vivid description of, of something, what it looks like, what it actually is. Like, 
what it means to do the grimy work of, of history? Well, some of it's grimy and some of it's not. I, a lot of sources have been digitized, thank goodness. Um, but right. it's only a fraction of of the whole. And you know, those are great um, because usually they've been cleaned up and you can see you know, smudge marks have been reduced you know, through, through digital processing and the like. Some records have been transcribed and put in type, TypeScript. Uh, those are very easy to read. But then there's the the actual letters in the archives and um you know most historians of of my ilk get a great thrill out of encountering those records do now, you as in, well oh as, uh, yeah. to this very day there you know yeah. they, they, those kinds of records are the life but blood of historical research i mean ideally if you go into a state archive or um you know a well-endowed institution like say the massachusetts historical society um you're going to get uh, these documents uh, preserved in an envelope or a folder. Um, sometimes they've been cleaned up of the grime that accumulates on them over the years. But other times, uh, I do work in town and county archives, you know, county courts, county probates, county registries of deeds, where uh, there have been occasions where I've opened up documents probably since the first time that they for the first time since they've been stored wow. um, you know that included one bundle of late 17th century land records which were bound in twine with a pin through them that's and when, so cool. and when I undid the twine, a cloud of dust um, uh, in, enveloped my head. I thought I might contract smallpox or something That's right. like that from it. I was terrified. Um, you know, but it's a thrill because you realize that you're seeing these documents for the first time in centuries. And indeed, in, in, in that bundle, I found a Wampanoag language document from the 1690s written by wow. a Wampanoag actor. Uh, you can't wow. make this stuff up. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm glad you weren't patient zero in bringing the Black Plague back. But uh, <laughs> you and I both. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, all right. Let's get to the book, though. So, we're talking to David Silverman from George Washington University. The book is called "This Land Is Their Land: The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving." So, uh, you don't dispute in your book that yes, the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags they did actually have a big, great feast together. Yep. Um, so, uh, tell us, you know. What do we get right about this great feast and that we've incorporated into the tradition of Thanksgiving? And what do we get wrong and why is a book like yours important to set that record straight? Well, there are two things that are right. And then there are an awful lot of things that are wrong. <laughs> you know, one thing that's right is, yeah, there there was this dinner. Um, and second, there was an alliance between the English of Plymouth Colony and the Wampanoag people um, that that dinner symbolized. Those two things are correct. Um, but everything else that Americans uh, attach to this story is wrong. Uh, so, you know, I think using a shared dinner as a symbol of Native American colonial relations really has it backwards. Um, you know, the the myth that's grown up around Thanksgiving is that friendly Indians, they're very rarely identified as Wampanoags, friendly Indians welcome uh, the English to America, hand over their country to them, and then disappear. And so what you end up with is, is bloodless, guiltless colonialism. In fact, colonial Indian relations was a power play and a bloody one at that, um, you know, which ultimately resulted in the death and dispossession 
of millions and millions of indigenous people. That's the story of colonial America. That is the story of the relations between the Wampanoags and the English, for that matter, because this alliance um, that of, of which the uh, Thanksgiving meal was a part degenerated into one of the bloodiest conflicts in, in colonial Indian history. Um, so it's, it's distorting um, to tell the history of Thanksgiving as a bedtime story, as a feel-good story, as some kind of sugar-coated tale. Um, colonial history shouldn't be taught that way. It shouldn't be understood that way. It should be understood as, as the bloody affair that it was. So why did they form this alliance in the first place? Why did they come together? And then how long did it last until it fell apart? Well, there's the reason that the English entered the alliance, and then there's the reason that the Wampanoags entered the alliance. The English entered the alliance for the reason that almost every other early colony entered an alliance with neighboring Native people. And that is, they would have they would have uh, uh, failed otherwise. Um, they needed Native people's protection. They needed Native people's trade. And the trade is not incidental. Uh, the trade in, in furs and, for that matter, the trade in Native American slaves from other Native people um, were some of the, the, the fundamental building blocks of colonial economies in the, in the early 17th century. Uh, there isn't a single colony that survives in, in early America uh, without a firm alliance with an indigenous polity. But then there's reasons that Native people entered uh, this alliance. And I'm, I'm considerably more interested in, in that story because I think it's really unfamiliar uh, to people. One reason is Native people wanted European goods. Um, you have to keep in mind, Native people were without metal. I mean, they had Stone Age technology before the arrival of Europeans. And so, uh, you know, their, the access, access to axes, knives, scissors, needles, <laughs> thimbles, guns, uh, swords, was a consumer revolution for, the, for these people. Kettles, uh, for that matter, the ability to uh, heat a vessel directly over a fire. Um, was a, you know, a significant leap in technology uh, for these people. Hmm. Um, they wanted their cloth, wool cloth, um, you know, thick weaves and, and various colors, uh, glass beads and pigments and oh, yeah, all sorts of incredible items from, from overseas. So Native people want to corner the market in those goods. Uh, they could see that these Europeans, uh, small as their numbers, were boasted uh, impressive military technology, and so the Native people wanted to harness um, that power for their own intertribal rivalries, which were one of the main drivers of this. And then there's the particular setting of New England. You know, the, the points I just made are uh, applicable to virtually almost any uh, native colonial context. But there's something particular about the Wampanoags on the eve of their contact with, with, uh, uh, with the English. One is they had experienced over 100 years of contact with Europeans before the arrival of the English of Plymouth. Um, that is the arrival of Mayflower is not a first contact episode. The first documented contact between the Wampanoags and Europeans is 1524. 
That's a long the, time. With, I mean, with the voyage not, of Giovanni yeah. de Verrazano, right? Yeah. And these these contacts could take place on a fairly regular basis, especially from 1602 onward, and they tend not to go well. Um, usually, uh, with uh, more often than not, uh, these European explorers are kidnapping native people from the shore. And then ferrying them back across the Atlantic, either to be sold into slavery or to be trained as interpreters and guides for future voyages. So these these native people learn that these Europeans are treacherous, um, but also quite militarily potent. Um, And so they have to figure out uh, how to relate to the next ship that comes over the horizon. Uh, Do you want to drive them off or do you want to try to harness them to your own ends? The Wampanoags decide to try to harness them to their own ends. And the reason is that they're desperate. One of these voyages before the arrival of the Mayflower had introduced a terrible epidemic disease into southern New England around the year 1616. We don't know what that disease was. Uh, People called it a plague. That just means a bad disease, not necessarily the bubonic plague. I suspect it was smallpox. We won't. we'll, We'll never know. But what this disease did is it effectively reduced the native population between southern Maine and the east side of Narragansett Bay by somewhere in the neighborhood of 75%. 75%. 75%. So if you think we're having a hard time with COVID, try to imagine yourself living in a world in which three quarters of all the people you know, and you know, a village is effectively your extended family reunion, right? Mm-hmm. All the people you care about and rely on are gone. Wow. But the Wampanoag's rivals on the west side of Narragansett Bay, the Narragansett people, did not contract the disease. And so, all of a sudden, the Wampanoags are facing a situation in which their ability to resist subjugation by the Narragansetts has been eviscerated. And then the Mayflower arrives. And what the Wampanoags are doing in reaching out to the Mayflowers, they're not just being friendly. They are looking for allies to help fend off they're indigenous rivals. Mm. It is a very different epidemics and intertribal rivalry <laughs> and bloody warfare is not how we normally tell uh, set the stage for the Thanksgiving meal. So would you say just before we move on, would you say that's sort of the consensus view among historians? Like you're not an outlier here. The consensus view is that they were struggling. There were obviously negatives that they foresaw because they had had contact before but that they just basically um, gambled and said, look, we need this. We, we, we're going to face extinction one way or another. So we gotta, we've got to make this alliance. Uh, that's precisely right. And let me, let me be clear. In the and short that's the, term. That's the, that's the consensus in your field. That is the consensus in the field. Um, mm-hmm. and, and let's be clear about this. In the short term, the Wampanoags led by their, uh, their chief, Usamequin or, or Massasoit, they gambled right. They mm-hmm. did maintain their independence from the right. Narragansetts. They did corner English trade. For a short period of time, Plymouth was a means for them to enhance their power, their independence, their influence. In the long term, of course, it was a terrible gamble. They should, they should have just wiped the colony out, um, but they didn't. They, they didn't. they didn't have enough foresight to see that coming. All right. So as you alluded to, the alliance does not last. So how quickly does trouble emerge and uh, when does it fall apart and why? Well, Plymouth isn't the trouble all by itself. Uh, Plymouth colony always remained an underpopulated, economically marginal place. It wasn't much of a threat on its own to its native neighbors. 
but Massachusetts was. <laughs> Plymouth and Massachusetts are two different colonies until the 1680s. And you know, whereas Plymouth begins with 100 people and eventually grows into a few thousand people, Massachusetts begins with a migration of upwards of 15,000 people in the course of nine years. And those people reproduced like Topsy. Uh, on average, uh, the women who migrate to Massachusetts bear eight children over, oh my the, over the course of their lives. And <laughs> wow. they're living, those children are living to adulthood at a far greater rate than they are in the crowded, unhealthy environments of Europe. So it's a recipe for a population explosion. What that means is that by the, by the 1650s, the English population in southern New England is already rivaling that of native people. And by the time we get to the 1670s, the English are already a population majority wow. in in the area. And they are more centrally uh, organized. Um, they have superior technology um, and they're throwing their weight around, <laughs> engrossing native land, encroaching on native jurisdictions, um, encroaching on, on native religions. And eventually native people get fed up with it. So uh, eventually this comes to a head. Um, you, you write that you, uh, if you're going to talk about Thanksgiving, if you're going to talk about this alliance, um, you have to think about King Philip's war. So um, tell us how this all comes to a head, why it happens in the aftermath. Well, there are long-term tensions, and then there's the spark of war. Um, you know, the long-term tensions are that this swarming of, of the English population, uh, the aggressive swarming of the English population, um, has led to loss of native land. Um, it's led to um, English uh, colonies and courts encroaching on native jurisdiction. It's involved missionaries um, trying to convert native people to Christianity. And as part of that process, convincing them to end their tribute payments to their native leaders um, mm -hmm. and throw their allegiance over to English. That probably wasn't popular. Was not, po <laughs> was not popular at all. And, you know, those, those tensions are simmering for years. But the the spark to the the tinder is when Plymouth Colony arrests three Wampanoags, high ranking Wampanoags, for the murder of another Wampanoag, a um, Christian Harvard College educated Wampanoag named John Sassaman, who had been informing Plymouth Colony of goings on within of scheming within the Wampanoag polity, um, and they they arrest, try, and execute these three Wampanoags for an affair that has nothing to do with the English. And for the Wampanoag leader, Pometacom, um, uh, or King Philip, as he's known, he is the son of Usamequin or Massasoit, the leader who had welcomed the English to Plymouth Colony. This is a step too far. He can see that if the English can claim the right to execute Wampanoag people for their own internal affairs, then there is nothing left of his authority or the Wampanoag people's sovereignty. And judges that he has nothing left to lose. He knows, he knows that warring against the English is going to be a, a formidable challenge, that the odds are not in Native people's favor. But he takes, he takes that decision anyway, um, which tells you how desperate he is. And eventually other Native people join the fight. You're not only because they agree uh, with his principles, but because the English forced them uh, into into the war by treating them as a fifth column. Wow. 
was there a way to have avoided the war? I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't know anything about this history. I can only imagine that basically it's like giving up and moving somewhere else. I, I, was there a way to avoid it? Did it have to happen? Historians are loath to characterize any event as inevitable. You know, we, we emphasize contingency, right? The, um, um, the, the idea that things could have turned out differently than they did if only fill in the blank. In this particular case, I think it's inevitable. Every single region of colonial settlement experiences at least one and usually multiple native resistance movements. And the reason is obvious. Native people are being invaded. They don't want to sacrifice their sovereignty. They don't want to live under European rule. And Europeans insist upon it. Um, could the Wampanoags have moved out somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, lots of native people migrate from the Atlantic coast inland if there's another native power that will permit them to do so. But let's be clear. It's not an empty continent. <laughs> Every square inch of it is claimed by one native polity after another. Um, and so native people need alliances with other people deep in the interior in order to make such a move. So how does this war play out and what happens to the Wampanoags afterward? Well, initially, native people are getting the better of the war. Um, they inflict several significant defeats on uh, on the English colonies. But ultimately, in the case of this war and in the case of most colonial war, colonists are able to fight a losing war longer against native people than native people are able to fight a winning one. Um, they have deeper reserves of population and, and material resources and money and advantages in transportation so they can wear down the enemy in a war of attrition which is precisely what happens here and ultimately colonists win a game of divide and conquer in which they convince ever more native people to quit the resistance or simply to join uh, colonial forces and indigenous people assist them in putting down this resistance in the end, the English shatter native power in southern New England, um, either killing and enslaving and sometimes shipping off um, thousands of native people. Other native people flee the region. Some go to the Catholic missions of Canada, um, others to a multi-tribal refugee center uh, on the Hudson River under the protection of English New York, interestingly enough. And some Native people are left, uh, Native people who by and large sided with the English, small numbers of Christian Wampanoags who sided with the English, Pequots, Mohegans, um, a small group of, of Narragansetts. And they are left to cope with the English ascendancy, um, which basically means being reduced to near landlessness and having their people forced into servitude and debt peonage um, for centuries to come. Those communities, by and large, la have lasted until this very day, um, but in, in impoverished, um, um, disempowered condition. Um, and this is... This is the beginning of the English ascendancy in, in New England. Uh, the, uh, the English population and power uh, grows um, unimpeded by Native people other than in Maine um, for the rest of the colonial era. So how does this um, modern myth, which I, do, which I do feel like if, you, if you're out in the culture, it has been falling apart for a number of years. Like I think maybe not all Americans, but a number of Americans are starting to pick up on the the complexities of what we're talking about. But uh, for the longest time, and still in many parts of the country, the whole aftermath of the feast is ignored. Right. So that's correct. Uh, 
Um, so why do you think this myth emerges? Like why does Thanksgiving come to mean something else rather than this, this complex story you're telling? Well, let's be clear that Colin has celebrated Thanksgiving's throughout the 17th and 18th century without ever invoking the, the feast between the, the pilgrims and, and the Wampanoags. They didn't associate that tradition with that story. That's so a, they were celebrating it around the same time with the same type of eventually. meals, right? Ev- like, but without, but without any connection to natives. Initially, uh, Thanksgivings were declared by the state, and you know, after a military victory or the end of a drought or you know what have you, and they could happen any time of year. Eventually, they became routinized. Um, Thanksgivings became routinized. They'd be held every late fall, usually after the closing of the year's account books, mm. um, but. For most of the 17th and the 18th and well into the 19th century, no one associated this ritual with pilgrims and Indians. <laughs> that is an invention of the 19th century. And the, the, the context, the cultural and political context in which that tradition emerges is very interesting indeed. So the impetus to creating this tradition is the publication of one of the primary sources that mentions the, the first feast. The feast between the English and and the Wampanoags. That source had been inaccessible to the public before the 1840s, but it's published in the 1840s. And the editor of this primary source includes a footnote after this. It's only like five lines long. um, This account of the feast, he, he writes, you know, this is the first Thanksgiving, the Harvest Festival of New England. And the idea... There aren't a lot of famous footnotes in history. Trust me as a historian. This is one of them. And uh, the idea begins to spread uh, hither. Literally from this footnote. From this footnote. Wow. Right? You know, uh, <laughs> folks like John Quincy Adams take the idea on the road and begin propagating it in their speeches um, and, and their writings. Um, yeah. At the same time, Plymouth Town was engaged in some tourist boosterism in which it wanted to assert that these obscure religious eccentrics of pilgrims were somehow founding fathers of America. Um, so, you know, they they helped to traffic in this idea. Mm-hmm. But what really brings it to fruition is, is people's anxieties over immigrants and race in the late 19th century. In the late 19th century, there was an influx of Catholic immigrants uh, from Ireland in Germany, later to be followed by other immigrants, not of the traditional American ilk from Southern Europe and and Eastern Europe. And old stock Anglo-Protestants wanted to assert their their cultural authority uh, within the United States during this period against people who they considered to be undemocratic and unfamiliar with American norms. Trumpeting this story about their Protestant fathers um, was a way of asserting that authority. It's also a way of creating a white we out of the heterogeneous mass of, of immigrants. You know, notice in a, a song such as My Country Tis of Thee, which often accompanies our celebrations of Thanksgiving, right? Um, folks with last names like mine, Silverman, um, sing about the pilgrims as my fathers. Well, you know, let's be clear. I don't descend either from pilgrims or Wampanoags, um, and all of their descendants are my countrymen and women. Um, but what I'm taught and what what school children began to be taught in the late 19th century, well, through the 20th, um, was that our fathers were the English, not the Wampanoags. 
And it's a way of cultivating a white identity among people who might not otherwise think of themselves that way. It's a way of thinking of colonists as we and indigenous people as they. Uh, it, you know, oftentimes history can be very contentious, right? Like some part of the stories are very clear. They've been triangulated and, you know, there's just uh, overwhelming evidence. Are there any parts of the story where there's a lot of significant debate or is this pretty much sort of the general consensus in the field? Well, I, I think when it comes to the interpreting the rise of Thanksgiving, there's a there's a consensus uh, about this. In, in the story I tell where there's a fair amount of contention. Um, it centers on the beginnings of King Philip's war. Uh, um, I think that native people were plotting a multi-tribal uprising before the war. Some of my colleagues think that that, uh, that, uh, plot was a figment of a paranoid English imagination and that it became a self-fulfilling prophecy as the English began trying to take preemptive measures to put out the fire thus forcing Native people to take up arms in, in resistance. I disagree. Uh, and the reason I disagree is that if you look around colonial America, these uprisings happen everywhere. And I think for very obvious reasons. What's more, um, English people on the ground, cheek by jowl with Native people who knew them uh, very well, could see that something was afoot. Um, and multiple sources uh, attest to this. And, you know, these folks aren't colluding with one another. They're all seeing the same sort of thing. So, uh, David, I have to ask you, you know, are you the Debbie Downer at uh, your family Thanksgiving? Like, is everybody having a good time? And you're like, well, you know, really, we should be thinking about King Philip's war here. <laughs> well, I, you know, my mother yelled at me a couple of Thanksgivings ago when I put a pilgrim hat um, punctured with arrows as the centerpiece. Um, she, she didn't she didn't particularly like that. Uh, look, <laughs> let me be clear. I love Thanksgiving. Typically, I host Thanksgiving and, and, and do the cooking for it. I, I, what could be more wonderful than getting together with family and friends and offering thanks for what's good in our lives? That's terrific. What I contend, though, is we don't have to attach that positive ritual to a patently false history. And not only a false history, but I, I think, and this is important for your, your listeners to consider, one that's damaging to our indigenous countrymen and women. Um, you know, it's a ritual that makes light of their historical traumas, uh, which are which are ongoing. Nobody in the country um, should have to suffer through a national holiday that does that to them. Um, national holidays should be unifying. And if we're going to attach history to them, that history should be true. The, the Thanksgiving myth is not true. So let's do away with the myth and keep the holiday. The two don't have to go together. Thanksgiving was celebrated without evoking the myth, the myth for centuries. It's a fairly recent invention. That's an interesting point. So, um, you know, you like Thanksgiving. Uh, you mentioned that, like you said, it was celebrated for so long as just a celebration of what end of harvest, end of the year, you know, whatever the case may be. And uh, and we could keep doing that the way we do it today, right? Like right. celebrating, getting together with family without having to sort of drag a whole racial group through <laughs> that trauma, right? And and not only drag a racial group through that trauma, but also misinform the vast majority of the population. Mm -hmm. um, this country has light years to go before it's ready to confront the real darkness of colonial America, um, which was rife with it. 
we have a lot of work to do in that direction. And I, you know, I think um, destabilizing the Thanksgiving myth is one step in that direction. I have to ask you, given your last answer, and then we'll, we'll get on out of here. But, um, you know, this is a time, as you're well aware, where uh, expertise is being heavily criticized. Mm-hmm. Um, facts themselves are being criticized. Um, and, and people like yourself, I think, are often accused of revising history to fit our current ideology. Um, I'm not accusing you of that, but I'm sure you've heard that, right? Sure. So um, can you reflect on what it's like to study history in this really fraught moment right now in the U.S. and what you say to people in the face of such criticism? Well, historians are people who live in the real world. And we ask questions of the past. We ask questions of our sources that are informed by our lived experience. And so, you know, sometimes our present day concerns, which are political, um, will shape those questions. So, you know, for instance, there's a whole population of environmental historians who are looking back on environmental change in the past. And uh, the reason that they're doing that is that they're concerned about about environmental change today. Um, There are vast numbers of historians that are looking back in the past and interested in the invention of race. One of the reasons we trace that process is we're concerned about racial inequities in in our society. Now, that doesn't mean that our findings are not true. It just means that our questions are informed by our present concerns. Someone with a different politics than mine might ask different questions of the past. But the historian's methodology is designed to guard against our politics shaping our findings. A historian with a different politics than mine asking the same questions as me and looking at the same sources should come up with roughly the same answer as I do. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it, it's asking a lot of the public to say you need to consider historians' methodology and your criticism of historians. That's probably a step too, <laughs> a step too far. Didn't you um, read my method section? But, you know, we work, we work very, very hard. Um, to allow the sources to take us where wherever they lead, or at least most of us do. Um, you know, some of us uh, are faulty in our methods, just like anybody else in in any other profession. But most of most of my colleagues, I am I am confident will will follow the truth wherever it leads them. And I, you know, I think here it's important to to make this intervention. The purpose of a history education is not to create little patriots. A history education might lead you to feel patriotic. It might lead you to feel unpatriotic. Frankly, I don't care. All I'm concerned is with telling is with telling the truth about the past as best I understand it. And then we'll we'll follow that truth wherever it leads us. You sound like Tommy Lee Jones and the fugitive. Like, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. <laughs> That's right. That's I'm exactly here to document right. history. That's right. <laughs> David Silverman, the book is great. It's called This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, 2019 from Bloomsbury. If it's a major bookseller, they got it, Amazon, anywhere else. David, thank you so much for joining the program today. I appreciate you having me. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you, keep smiling until then, who cares about
about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet Take a liking to you.